Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You will die without honor. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Worf. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. My name is David Pizarro from Cornell University. Tamler, Ernest Hemingway, Charles Bukowski, Dorothy Parker, Paul Bloom. What does it feel like to join the ranks of alcoholics who have written at least one book? <laughs> it feels great, especially Charles Bukowski. I, I, he's the one I feel most aligned with with you know yeah you're, think, you're also ugly and visit lots of prostitutes <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of prostitutes i think paul bloom drinks but i think he's more of a poser alcoholic than an actual alcoholic dorothy parker i'm just not as witty and yeah, i don't sit yeah. at circular tables as much um and then hemingway i mean he could definitely out drink me i think but, but your sentences are short, which is, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> my sentences. Are, yeah, we both have short sentences. I, I he's more of a fan of bullfighting than I am. <laughs> OK, second question. OK, we know that the Romulans, the Cardassians and the Nausicans are without honor. But how the fuck could you write a whole book on honor and not mention Klingons? <laughs> this well, first of all, uh, I, I don't know that Kim Kardashian is without honor. <laughs> she defended her husband, Kanye, on uh, all the shit that he's been getting in his last couple of weeks. Wait a yes and the Star Trek, que- <laughs> Star Trek question that you couldn't answer. Um. <laughs> That's the kind of training I have. It's not just the thing about improv. It's not just it's an ethic. It's not just like a technique. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, as as you might be able to tell, I I was in control of the opening questions because I made it a condition to open the show because today we're talking about Tamler's new book. What? Why honor matters? Why honor matters? Why honor matters? I don't know which of the three you prefer. <laughs> I like um, why ah, Nurma, Nurma, Nurmaders, Nurmaders. Yeah, like that. Uh, all right, so I'm not really going to be in control of the rest of the episode, but um, but well, I hope uh, you are. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't have anything prepared. <laughs> it's uh, we should tell the listener right now it's a little early in the morning i think you've only done like one or two lines of cocaine i well i pu- 
I put all of the stimulants in my house together and made some unholy cocktail uh, because it's it is far too early. Um, Sounds like more of a holy cocktail. <laughs> like to get my hands on whatever it is. Yeah. Speaking of Hunter S. Thompson. Um, uh, yeah. So. <laughs> Where was so no, it was Hunter S. Thompson who had that wonderful, it was like a journal entry where he describes his average day um, and all of the substances he takes. Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. We talked about that. So let's, <laughs> I thought, I thought we would start actually with you. I think our listeners would be interested in, in a little bit of inside baseball here about um, the writing of the book. And because here's the thing, you've been writing this thing for four years, right? From conception to now, and the book is coming out tomorrow, it's... Tomorrow as of recording, today, if you're, hopefully, if you're listening. Yeah, hopefully we're (laughs) recording this pretty late. Uh, So, yeah, let's see. Like, when I first started talking to the agent... So here's the conception of it, and this is somewhere around four to five years ago, but maybe I think probably four. Um, you mentioned to me that you were sitting next to this agent, right? This was right. early on in the podcast. He was, he was, he had listened to it, and you gave him my name, said that I might be interested in writing a trade book. He called, he contacted me, asked me if uh, I wanted to pitch some ideas for a trade book. Trade book means a book that's not just for academic audiences, but is for wider audiences. That's right, popular press book. Yeah. And so not being used to having agents contact me. Um, in fact, I think that would that was the first time that agents have contacted me, unless it's been about, like, sex it's or like something. Federally. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a or different it's story. been about my... Uh... So uh, not knowing anything about that, I called the person I know the best who has worked with popular books and to great success i called paul bloom and i gave him some ideas about what i was thinking justice partial justice like not impersonal uh, impartial justice but a defense of like personal justice or a defense of um you know some sort of trade book account of my views on free will and moral responsibility and i went through all of these um with with paul and he's like, and and he said, "Yeah, huh? That's funny. Um, you know, it's I would have thought, given our discussions that we've had, and you know, listening to you and Dave on the podcast, that you would be writing a book about honor." And so I said. Oh yeah, you know that's 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 an interesting one. I uh, yeah, I guess I I guess I would have thought that too. But it honestly hadn't occurred to me until Paul suggested it. This that's is funny the, how how other people can know better. It's than true. You yeah. yeah. So then I pitch a bunch of ideas to the agent. The only one he even remotely is interested in is the honor one. So right. Paul was completely right about that. <laughs> and um, over the next. I don't know, two, two and a half years. This is why this must have been over four years ago. I was trying to put together a proposal, and I don't know how many drafts I went through of a proposal. It was probably five, six, seven, eight. I mean, 
it 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 was it looks completely different. And here's something that an agent does that I didn't know that an agent does. I mean, he really stuck with me throughout the whole process and had no compunction about telling me to junk proposals that just didn't work. They right. just kept telling me to like to to get an argument down and I didn't have it and I tried all sorts of different angles. I also tried to give up on the project um, two or three times. I said, I just can't write this book. It's honor is too diffuse a concept. It's too messy. I, I feel like a fraud. I feel so I, I but but if you just let me write this book on justice and he you know, <laughs> and then he, he he says, look, when I go to the office and I tell them I have a potential client that that wants to write a book on justice, everybody kind of rolls their eyes and looks down at their phone. But when, <laughs> when I tell them uh, he, he wants to write a book on honor, they get excited. They think that's interesting. So he made me stick with it. And so finally I got a framework that I liked and I started putting that together. Then he helped me sharpen it. Then a couple other people in the agency helped me sharpen it. And then, um, yeah, and then we sent it out to right publishers. so for people people who who might not know because you know i don't know why you would unless you were somebody who talks to people who write books um the way that the trade books work is you write a proposal you don't write the whole book and try to shop it you write a proposal which is pretty short and and uh it can be like 16 pages with the outline yeah. or something but yeah right 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 with an outline and and then and then you shop it and and Pretty much, you're hoping that that publishing houses will bid for it, and and if there's more than one bidding for it, they'll the, the price will go up. The and price goes up yeah. significantly, and for a while, it did look like there was going to be that bidding war because um, I talked to a bunch of editors, but in the end, only Basic Books decided they wanted to put in an offer for it. So my advance turned out to be modest. <laughs> Well, as, as they say, but you know, it was really nice. And the main thing was, Basic Books is a, is a, it's in some ways a perfect press for me because the other because you're basic because because I'm basic. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it 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 it's not it's not scared of more kind of scholarly approach. Now, I don't think my book has a lot of that, but it has in, in too much for some of the publishers based on what they said i mean here's so, my high praise for you is no you really you really dumbed it down way to attract the audience it's more for just total idiots like morons <laughs> if you've just learned to read this is your book dick and jane have honor um yeah so like, well, well props to russell your agent yeah props to him for that process then uh, writing drafts of the book, that's the least fun part by far, is just getting the book from a blank screen to a draft. Um, that was just torturous, and I had obstacles like various uh, iPhone games that could make me lose <laughs> like a week uh, when I knew I should be writing. That took about two years, a um, little over. It was, I, I the book... I had a deadline and I went past the deadline by about eight, six to eight months. And I had some, a good amount of help from my editor, TJ at basic books. And also another editor there named Leia 
she she gave me some really detailed notes on the on the first draft and then russell at and then that was it and i'm happy with it and it's coming out and the process leading up to the book getting published is very stressful and not at all fun trying to set up promos i did get to go on uh, waking up without you it's uh i mean you know, I was going to wait to get to the the part of where you're without honor. Um, where I betray to you. Bring, to bring that up on your various podcasts, but it's okay. It's it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I okay. went on The Art of Manliness. Yeah. I went on uh, Waking Up. Art of Manliness has been released, so you could check that out. I haven't listened to it because I don't like to listen to myself. <laughs> Except for the many hours you spend editing this podcast. <laughs> right. That's, the, that's the, uh, as much of myself as I can stomach. And then, uh, yeah, I don't know when Waking Up is going to come out, hopefully soon. And then I'm going on Robert Wright's Meaning of Life podcast or that TV thing uh, this week. Our our former guest. And then that's it. I'm sure John Oliver will have you on soon. Yeah. Um, No, that's that's what I'm thinking. And I'm... I haven't heard from Kimmel yet, but <laughs> but ass- your people are your people are in contact. <laughs> assuming that's just yeah, like he just doesn't have the right email address or something, or he's wait he's probably waiting till the end of the semester, which is nice of him. You know, like, a <laughs> that's lot right. He's like right. he's Sandler's doing a lot of great grading. I don't want to. <laughs> let's just get let's just get you know Tom Cruise on for. So that's the process. And, and, you know, like it really is the whole way something that obviously I did. And oh, by the way, I have to give credit to my wife also who read drafts of it and helped sharpen it and make it a lot better than it would have been um, Jan. And but it's it's amazing how many just not accidental. So, yeah, I mean, in some ways, sort of things that come from outside you that help shape the book and what it's going to be. I mean, even the whole topic of the book was shaped from an outside source. And then all the different things that happen to lead you in the direction that it, that it goes. It really is something that can't be done without a, a good support system sort of all around. You're saying you're not Kauza Sui. I am not Kauza <laughs> Sui. Um, yeah. Right. The book is um, an event that is the result of <laughs> earlier events. It was since the Big Bang. Yes. Tracing. Matter and motion have caused this book to be written. Um, but hopefully matter and motion will also cause it to be read. Thanks to everybody, by the way. I don't have to like promote it anymore, like the pre-order of that part. Um, I'm so grateful, though, for those of you who did and who will give it a little bit of a boost, hopefully, that first week. So today, you're going you're gonna to say why you hate the book, right? Yeah, well, that's, that was my plan, but I don't hate it. It's, it's, so it kind of spoiled it um, for me. Um, but here's where I want to start, because I love this. You start off, I think it's in the prologue. When you say that you view yourself as an honor tourist, I, I worry that <laughs> I might be like an honor tourist. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's one sense in which that's not a bad thing because if you're, you know, because having an external perspective might be a bit better. Not not to say that you have no honor, but you know what I'm saying. You're not from a traditional honor culture, obviously. Um, well, Boston and Israel. Y- yeah. 
but you're not really from Israel. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> you are really from Boston. I'll give you that. But you know, you don't practice Sharia law. I guess like, you're you're not a gang member <laughs> for now. <laughs> so that worry, though, um, how much of talking about these cultures that you're outside of, I guess, is really was a concern. Um, so here's the the whole quote i think in context it'll make a little bit more sense so i say at times i worry that i'm what you might call an honor tourist someone who takes in the sights of honors in movies and books and who can enjoy the grandeur without having to endure the costs of living there on a daily basis so the worry there was that you know, it's one thing from the outside to see a lot of the benefits of honor and to enjoy the the, the drama and, and excitement of some of these cultures and admire the courage that is displayed and the social cohesion that you often find within honor cultures. But I, that I would be less sensitive to the downside of really living in an honor culture, having your autonomy restricted in all sorts of different ways, really having certain roles thrust upon you that maybe don't fit your identity. And so throughout the book, I made a special effort to not be blind to the dark side of right. what living in an honor culture on a day-to-day basis can bring to people. You know, I was raised by Latin American parents, but in the United States. So I'm sort of bilingual as when it comes to honor. I both get to embrace And I think this is the experience of a lot of um, immigrant, children of immigrants. Um, so I came to the United States when I was two. Yet um, shame and respect and honor were uh, thrust upon me, often with a belt. And <laughs> with a, Did with your a look beat of you disgust. a lot? I didn't know that. Uh, no, see, you call it beat. That's that's why that that's the difference, right? I I just was merely spanked very hard with a belt. <laughs> <laughs> that's what uh, people from honor cultures called it. That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, I I say we. There are a lot of people who have this common experience where um, uh, sometimes when I say those things, people in in this culture think I must have been abused and suffered as a child. And I'm like, no, it's just, what do you mean? You weren't spanked? No wonder. But, but I think that, that you're right to, to be, um, to be cautious. Both of us have, have very much, especially early on in the episode, have enjoyed the pause, the upsides of honor cultures in, in media and entertainment. And we've made quite a bit of sort of display of showing the fun, the fun part. Um, and obviously there's, <laughs> there's a downside in many cases, but, but you know, you're careful. If anything, you're too careful. You don't go full Paul Bloom on this. <laughs> oh, he's careful too. <laughs> he's careful too. Well, should we back up? Actually, we should back. You're right. We should back up even more and talk about what the, your main claim is here. Let's let's take a break and then yeah, we'll let's come take a break and, 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 and speak on the content of your book. Dave, have you taken Bella to an eye exam recently? I actually need to. <laughs> and so I had to as well. Eliza needed new contacts because she had run out of contact lenses, and our eye insurance not coming 
from like a fancy Ivy League health insurance policy like you have is not great. And so I had to schedule an appointment with Eliza at a kind of place that looked a little like a back alley abortion clinic, like back when abortion was illegal. You do. You remember that, don't you? (laughs) I do. Yeah. Back in those days. It was a huge pain in the ass. It took forever, and all it was was to just get a renewed prescription. I wish there was another way. I wish there was another way that I didn't have to go through that. It was like a multi-day process. What? I think there is. Wait, what? There <laughs> I think is? there's another way. <laughs> well, what is that? With the wonderful power of the internet technology, companies can arise to fulfill and meet the needs of people just like you, Tamler. Simple contacts. Simple contacts. You're kidding. So what would would I need to do instead of see like a 90-year-old eye doctor who takes her in some back room and I don't know what's happening there and then two hours later she comes out? I don't think that's a real doctor and I wouldn't let my daughter. (laughs) But but all you need to do to renew your prescription is take a five-minute vision test from your phone or your computer. It's reviewed by a licensed doctor and you get your prescription and you can reorder your contacts. It's that easy, Tamler. I'm almost I almost want contacts now. My daughter loves them. And simple contacts, now that I see them, I'm looking this up. It's a million things demanding your time. Contact lenses shouldn't be one of them. I mean, I'm reading this, but this is all true. This came like at the end of the semester. With simple contacts, you can renew your prescription and reorder your contacts from anywhere in minutes. God, why didn't I know about this before? No more doctor's offices, shady doctor's offices with like (laughs) flickering lights. Uh, No more waiting rooms. It's fast. It takes less than five minutes. It's reliable. Licensed ophthalmologists review every test. It's designed by doctors. And it has all brands and types of lenses you're familiar with. And the best part about it, it saves you money. The vision test is only $20. Compare that with an appointment without insurance would cost over $200. That's true. Even with insurance, it costs a shitload of money. Uh, the contacts lenses prices are unbeatable, and the shipping is free. Best of all, we are offering a promotion to our listeners. And now just a reminder, this isn't a replacement for a periodic full eye health exam. But get $30 off your contacts at simplecontacts.com slash wizards or enter code wizards at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash wizards or enter code wizards at checkout for $30. Well... Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Thank you, everybody. Um, Tamler's already thanked people for the support uh, that he's received for for the book. 
But as always, we're both thankful for all of the support for this podcast. And I have to say this time, last night, Tamler, I was just reading. I hadn't read our iTunes reviews in a while. Yeah. And um, and I was trying to catch up on email because I sort of had a long weekend and and week and I hadn't I hadn't read them all yet. And, and I was just like, fuck, man, our our listeners really are awesome. So positive and kind and even when they disagree with us uh respectful and i really really appreciate it um, and, and substantively they're really good like the, the quality of the email and the interaction that we get I, I just can't imagine that other places have that high level of quality yeah we're so, lucky so yeah thank you guys if you want to contact us email us verybadwizards at gmail.com you can tweet to us at tamler at peas or at Very Bad Wizards, you can um, leave us a message on our Facebook page or engage in discussion there. And you can go to our ever-growing subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash Very Bad Wizards, and engage in discussion there. There's been funny things there um, all the time. Yeah, if you would like to support us in other ways, you can always go to verybadwizards.com slash support, and you'll see those ways there. You can give us a paypal donation if if you'd like you can shop on amazon by clicking on our link first we really appreciate that and you don't pay anything extra but we get a little percentage of your uh, whatever it is you buy and finally you can go to our patreon page and become a regular patreon supporter um we we really appreciate that um, quite a bit patreon.com slash very bad wizards and choose to even a, the smallest amount of regular money um, makes us very, very grateful. Yeah, we really appreciate it. And now that summer's here and our schedule is freeing up a little bit, I promise that we'll have some extra content for you guys um, at the levels that are described on Patreon. Uh, I feel like we owe them. We owe them newsletter. We owe them another sort of bonus recording. Uh, maybe on another Black Mirror episode. I was thinking I might, before you even watch Twin Peaks, The Return, that I might give sort of, because I've gotten a lot of people asking me how I interpret that last season, I might do like a 10, 15 minute just brief summary for only those people who have listened to it, only those patrons who have listened to it, of how I understand to the extent that I do that last season of Twin Peaks. That's a good idea. Season three. So uh, a bunch of stuff to look out for for our Patreon supporters who we absolutely love and we couldn't continue without. All right. So uh, take two. We tried to do this yesterday, and I don't know what led to it, but it led to a fight, an argument, and not a productive one, not one that listeners would enjoy hearing i mean probably parts of it because you're all <laughs> sick fucks but <laughs> yeah we always get requests when we say this that we're like come on release it but <laughs> we release everything that's worth listening to yeah um this that's just delved into into minutiae <laughs> and it's a, it a tough day we didn't even get to restorative justice which is what usually sets <laughs> us off um, but honestly, like, the like main thing is, I think that we're not used to talking about each other's work, and we're not, uh, and especially not like on the day or the day before 
<laughs> like a book <laughs> is published. So uh, that's maybe right. That's it, right. it was. So so we're we're gonna talk about honor, but we're gonna talk about it because um, a lot of you won't have read the book yet, and or almost all of you won't have read the book yet. Some of you may never read the book, which is a huge mistake. But um, <laughs> we're gonna talk about a paper. And that was one of the papers that I looked to early on in the process. And it's a very short and really classic seminal paper on honor as in contrast to dignity by the sociologist Peter Berger. And then we'll see where that takes us in terms of relating it to some of the concepts in the book. Because I actually think it sets up the problem pretty nicely the same problem that i'm addressing in the book that's right it's um it's it's a great short little little article that we'll link to there's a free version on the internet somewhere peter berger is sociologist um when i took sociology of religion in college i read a book by him called the sacred canopy that i really loved um but i just looked on his wikipedia and he died last year i did not know that well, so. let's pour one out for Peter Berger. <laughs> and uh, I'm grateful to him for sure. It's okay, but 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 we are like I do want to say we're talking about your book. So so um, do you think it would be good for you to just give us a, a like give an overview of the main thing that you're arguing and maybe especially about this honor versus dignity? Yeah. So the kind of honor oriented communities that I'm defending. Uh, or giving a qualified defense of, I, I can give some characteristic features of these communities and the sort of value system that is at the center of their their conception of what of a value and a good life. One characteristic feature is a heightened concern for personal reputation and group reputation. Um, so if you live in one of these communities, you're going to be extra. I mean, this is all a matter of degree. You're going to be extra concerned about your reputation in the eyes of other valued members of the community. And you're going to be concerned more than you would in a non-honor culture with the reputation of your particular group. Uh, and then along with that comes a, usually a heightened sensitivity to insult or to challenges to your reputation, because if you if your reputation is challenged and you don't respond, that is often a source of shame and a, often a source of dishonor, and so your reputation goes down. So that's one characteristic feature. Another is there is a strong code that people should handle their own business, that they should stand up for themselves or their group when they're challenged and not, and there's a resistance in honor cultures to third-party interference, to interference by an impartial third party. Uh, there, the, the code, and this is something that you see in virtually all honor cultures, is you, if, if uh, somebody wronged you, it's up to you to respond to that. Now, how you respond, it can be anything from revenge to some sort of mediation to, but it is something that you are supposed to take care of personally and not just marshal out the conflict to, um, to some sort of uh, third party that has no personal collect- connection to you or the, the person who wronged you. So this is why you have like stop snitching campaigns. This is why 
uh, in baseball and hockey, which are the two so the two sports where you have these long feuds and these beefs. They never talk to the media about them. They never try to involve officials or Major League Baseball. They really try to handle uh, all their feuds themselves, and they resent uh, any kind of interference from from the league, uh, unless things have spun out of control. Honor communities tend to place a higher value than 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 dignity cultures on virtues like courage, hospitality, loyalty, integrity, and and, and a kind of solidarity within the group. Um, you know, I think in dignity cultures, and we'll, and we'll talk about this when we talk about the burger essay. But you, there's a strong kind of cosmopolitan element that you shouldn't favor your in-group over the out-group, that there's something irrational about that. And that attitude is just uh, rejected in most honor cultures, that uh, the idea that you shouldn't favor the interests of your group, that you shouldn't be loyal to your group, and that you should care just as much about strangers as you do of the people uh, who you're connected with personally, that's considered not just not an ideal, but something that would be, in most cases, positively immoral. And then there's this, which the Berger essay talks the most about, you find a sense of identification in honor cultures, both with the group and with your role within a group. So there's this real sense of collective identification, collective responsibility, and there's a sense of who you are is wrapped up in what group you belong to, what family you belong to, and your role within that group or family. And that kind of captures who you are in a way that in a dignity culture, as Berger says, it's those things are thought to be masks or disguises for who you really are. Right. That's a real it's a it's a a real difference that that in <laughs> in these cultures on these honor cultures if you want to understand who you are you look to your social roles you look to your family you look to your your um affiliations and that is who you are there's nothing to pe- there's when you peel that away there's nothing there's no core self and that's so different from the the very much sort of western ideal of of having to shed all of those things to find out who you are so yeah i mean the one thing i would push back on is i don't know if there's no core self i think you know like all of these differences they are matters of degree but i would say yourself is much more constituted by those roles and by your membership within the group than they are in the dignity cultures yeah well one way of saying this is is and again i was you know raised bilingual in the sense of honor and dignity raised in the u.s by people who very much come from one of these cultures but i but one thing that always seemed weird to me was the notion of finding yourself um that is so common here um by like go traveling alone to india (laughs) or something (laughs) You right. know, like what the Beatles did, which I was like, is is do they just think that there is a secret stash of selves that like Westerners can go find? <laughs> like, to me, to find yourself was it just meant to involve yourself with your family. 
um, I feel like I am my truest self um, as as a person who is part of my family. Um, Do you still so, feel that way? Absolutely. I am. I to me, there is. It's so. And we, we can talk about this on on Berger's view, but to me, it is fundamentally alienating to think of myself as a a at core a person independent of all of those things. Like it, it really is to me. This it's constitutive. Like when I say self, I mean my relationship to my friends, to my family, um, in in a lesser sense, to my profession. So yeah. I mean, because I actually. F- I, I, I feel both ways, but probably less in that family and group constitutes myself. Um, and I can make sense a little bit of the idea of finding yourself in that isn't the idea that you're really going to try to discover what you truly value rather than all the things that your parents told you to value or maybe the people in your group or Hebrew school told me to value or, (laughs) you know, what are the things that are really important to me that really matter to me? I mean, that that idea makes sense to me. It resonates uh, to a certain degree. The question is where 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 that stops and what the source of that kind of self could possibly be if it was completely disconnected from all the things that made you in the first place. Right. So, so I think to clarify, and I should say, this is like, it's not a contest about like which, which view is right. There are cost and benefits to both. There, yeah, there can't be a right answer to how to find yourself. I, like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it depends what you mean by right. But but when I say that my identity is fundamentally about my relationships to my family and my friends, I don't mean necessarily it is an endorsement of the roles that they have thrust upon me. Often, very often, it is actually sort of me finding what I value and what what is meaningful to me sort of over against their views. But it takes my relationship to them to understand that. Right. That is to me to leave and to to just be alone or talk to people whom I don't know at all is the is the worst way. That is actually brings me alienation and anime and all of the bad, (laughs) the bad things. Yeah. I mean, so this is what I think the burger essay does really well is it shows that. And this is also something that I try to echo in the book and develop at greater length that sometimes the depending on the the group depending on here's my bird clock <laughs> why you have that de- depending on the context the institutional roles the identity that's kind of thrust upon you is oppressive and doesn't really uh it it is kind of an impediment to you being able to uh, live the life as, as you really take yourself to be. So I give an example in the book of um, these prisoners that I talked to um, from the Prisoners Entrepreneurship Program in Texas that does job training and uh, character building for, for prisoners who are about to be released. Some you know They're going to be released within the next two to five years. And 
they start out with in uh, knowing the prison environment and the kind of the kind of reputation you have to have in prison just to survive. The the program starts with what they call a degangsterization process. So they give each other sweet names. And, uh, they introduce themselves with their sweet names. So like they'll be called like Candy Corn or Milli Vanilli. And, and the idea is to shed that reputation that they've worked so hard and had to work so hard to cultivate in prison of being like a tough badass that you cannot fuck with under any circumstances. And what one prisoner told me when I talked to them about this is that, or or one of the people, a former prisoner who now is running the program, he says, degangsterization is really a process of self-discovery. When you're in prison, you take on an identity for survival. When you get into PEP, you can find out who you are. Right. right. And, and right. that's the... You know, that's the idea, that's the move from culture of honor to culture of dignity that I think has been valuable and and helpful. Right. The, the issue, as you suggested um, earlier, is, well, it, in that context, it is valuable and to shed a certain kind of identity that may not suit who you really are as a person. But but when you are trying to find out, when you are going through that problem process of self-discovery, what is the material through which you find out who you really are and what matters to you? Right. And, and this is, I mean, it's, it's a modern problem, right? Because I think that, I, I think that one way to understand this is that, that human psychology say as as it evolved um or at least as it is it has been historically which is living in small societies with certain roles i think an honor honor cultures are the natural the natural way of being that is just how we regulated ourselves and i feel like it is in some sense a default not not even to make the claim that it is is innate or biological or anything like that, but rather that it is what emerges from a group of people that are of a certain size that have the certain features that we have that needs to come to some sort of arrangement about how to act and how to regulate the actions of others. And all of the upside that comes along with that, which is all of the things that you talk about in your book, um, the the very sort of the the positive communal sense, the sense of identity, the sense of really the sense of meaning, like because who you are is so tightly linked with with uh, what what brings meaning to you in life, and then all of a sudden we have an uh, you know a set of things that happens to in the world um, that that shakes the way in which most of us live, which is this, the modernization at the deepest level, this, this all of a sudden becoming living in big cities, industrialization. No, I'm quoting here, no monocausal theory is likely to do justice to the transformation that has taken place. Very probably most of the factors commonly cited have in fact played a part in the process. Technology and industrialization, bureaucracy, urbanization, and population growth. The vast increase in communication between every conceivable human group, social mobility, 
the pluralization of social worlds and the profound metamorphosis in social in the social contexts in which children are reared. So now you're reared for better or worse, and I think often for better, uh, but sometimes for worse, you're reared with the option to choose a role, right? You are not you are not raised the son of a farmer who is going to be a farmer. You're raised the son of a farmer who now can choose to move to the city and become, a, you know, a whatever, you know, an accountant. But it, once you get to the city, you won't know you won't know anybody, and you, you will spend mo- you will interact most of the time with total strangers, and it, it you run the risk of feeling lost in that sense of trying to find out what your purpose is right. there is it right to it make... is it is like the first time you go you know right the, living in a small town or something the first time you go into a grocery with you know like 500 kinds of jams and cheeses it's like wait what how, how do i know what to pick that is <clears throat> to me the metaphor that captures the 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 sense of of threat that comes from all of the options that are now available to to you. But again, like as Peter Berger points out, and I think as you point out, this is this is by no means a, a just clearly bad thing because there have been so many oppressive roles that people were born into that they couldn't escape. So this, you know, the good part of this is that people can go and escape those roles yeah if women are if their role is deemed you know that they shouldn't be educated as is true in some cultures i mean just the the opportunity to get an education is something that would allow you to engage in some sort of fruitful process of self-discovery that's being denied to you by your role in these right. cultures and that's obviously a bad thing and so the idea which ultimately leads to uh, a strong ethic that we have to respect human rights certain minimal rights is i think tied to this in some ways right that, that these rights are the rights that every individual needs in order to find out what their what really matters to them and to and and to live what they consider to be a good life if those rights are infringed they won't be able to to accomplish that so to the extent that dignity cultures has enabled uh uh, people in these kinds of contexts to um to have the opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have that's definitely to be celebrated certainly nothing that i write and nothing that Berger writes wants to deny that but what he does and what i try to do is also show some of the costs of this of this idea because when you start taking it to the extreme when you start thinking that every every role or every value that comes from outside of you is and, and that you might believe now you no longer think of it as a part of you but as something that is act, actively blocking you from right. trying to figure out what what your meaning is what your purpose is and and what the essence of you is then that's when you can have that feeling of alienation isolation and just being completely lost in a void right it's like exactly. your self disappears 
Yeah, yeah. And um, to quote Berger, um, in a world of honor, the individual discovers his true identity in his roles, and to turn away from the roles is to turn away from himself in false consciousness, one is tempted to add. In a world of dignity, the individual can only discover his true identity by emancipating himself from his socially imposed roles. The latter are only masks, entangling him in illusion, alienation, and bad faith. So these these are two very, very different ways of approaching um, uh, yourself. And um, and I think that that it wouldn't be hard to argue that the dignity way is for all of its advantages, there's no guide. <laughs> you don't have, there are no, there's no good way to figure out how to go about finding your identity in, in the world of dignity in the same way that you might have in the world of honor. I think the challenge maybe that is posed by, by you and arguing for what you argue for is how do we, how do we hold on to some of these positive features of, of honor and honor cultures, uh, features that resonate with human psychology and human society as it has been lived for so many years without having to abandon the moral goods of of dignity right? yeah and um, the purpose and the meaning and the sense of community that um that arises with it just to give an example of what he's talking about with false false consciousness so in an orthodox jewish synagogue women aren't allowed to sit with the men like that's not your the men uh are in one part of the synagogue the women are in the other part of the synagogue and a lot of people object to that why that that the women aren't allowed to do the same things that the men are going to do but i know when i talk to my female relatives they say oh we're totally happy with the role that we've been allotted and so if you if you come from like a hardcore dignity culture you might say well that's just what they say that right. might even be what they believe but that's because they have yet to discover what who they truly are and and that's the idea of false consciousness even though they say they want yeah. they don't want to be sitting with the men and even though they believe that it's better if women sit in one place and men sit in the other place the true them doesn't really believe that so right. it's this separation of the true self you we talked about this with berlin a little bit that like that kind of true self from a, an empirical self that sort of says the the various things because those people in the eyes of somebody who really embraces the whole idea of dignity that my relatives are um are are being prevented there like, there's like a disguise that they can't even see over right to again quote Berger. he says in a world of honor identity is firmly linked to the past through the reiterated performance of prototypical acts and maybe what we're doing by telling those people that they're not allowed to do it because they are more the, the dignity and the morals that come along with impartial dignity say that they shouldn't do it is removing people from some sense of identity and and I'm not arguing in either case. And a path case. to identity, even. Yeah. And, I, and again, I'm not arguing in, in any specific case what the right answer is. But, but to deny that there is a tension between those and that there are positives on both sides, I think, is to, to fail to see the, the problem, that, to fail to diagnose the problem. Right. Yeah, the com and the complexity of it. One yeah. one analogy that I wish maybe I'd developed a little bit more in the book, I just kind of allude to it, is 
in art and the act of creation as an artist, often the constraints of your art form, whatever it is, is the source, can be the source of your creativity. Absolutely. And when you take away the constraints, the create the act of creation can often be either more difficult or in some cases impossible. But even like the strict constraints of a sonnet or, you know, a certain style right. of painting or a certain, you know, the, uh, the, the act structure in a screenplay, those are the things that can help the, uh, the, the artist f- actually create the thing that they want to create and i think you know that's like an analogy for the self the self needs some constraints in order to create itself and discover itself that's right because those they provide a path and i mean yeah i love i I do like that analogy i think it is the story of sort of the emergence of hip-hop it was was the real constraints on on the the equipment and whatever that people had access to that caused sort of two turntables and two copies of a record to be at the at the very heart of what what hip-hop music is in a world in which you had every instrument available to you it would never have emerged right yeah Um, exactly i want like there is something that i really liked that that you talk about and that is 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 in the burger essay which is the concept of insult as an assault on honor. Um, and Berger actually starts his, his essay by talking about, um, you know, if somebody's really insulted nowadays, there's very little recourse, um, any real serious recourse, right? So, so he says, um, insult in itself is not actionable, is not recognized as a real injury. The insulted party must be able to pr- prove material damage. There are cases where phys- psychic harm may be the basis for a legal claim, but that too is a far cry from a notion of offense against honor. If an individual is insulted and as a result is harmed in his career, capacity to earn an income, he may not only have recourse to the courts, but may count on the sympathy of his friends. But, he's, but he goes on to say, but if neither of those material injuries pertains, he will certainly be advised by lawyers and friends alike to just forget the whole thing. Right. And um, then if he keeps maintaining it he'll be negatively characterized yeah neurotic overly sensitive yeah and i think this is going on in just thinking about and after reading your book and and talking to you in the past couple of days it seems to me that that tribalism modern tribalism is a an attempt at getting back some of what honor cultures bring but it is an attempt that is fundamentally flawed because there is no personal connection. That is, it is, it is, it's a, a, a house of cards in that you belong to a group, but that group is so abstract and your obligations and your duties and, and all of those things just do not exist in the same way. You're not held personally responsible by members of your community. Right. There is, you are a Twitter gangster. Yeah. Right. The whole function yeah. of all the of of tribalism as it evolved in our species is completely stripped away. And it's you just away. get the ugly 
aspects of it without right. like actual you know identifying or 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 feeling a kind of connection to real people now it's to a political ideology or to uh to some sort of concept rather than an actual people right and so and and i think that that maybe to say it in this way that what happens then is as anybody who is online or even watching TV for for any you know anything more than 3 seconds you see a lot of instances of offense but i i want to distinguish insult from offense like that there is at least just to to use like not to use these words differently um true insult comes from from the deep personal commitments and and the the cohesion between individuals and mere offense in the tribalistic sort of way it because it lacks because it lacks those interpersonal connections is is more cheap and it tries to do the work of claiming insult um but in a culture of dignity not only is there no true recourse to a to a uh, to offense without honor right the, but it's not, it's it is easily dismissed as not even the the right response because after all like come on we live in a culture of dignity how how can you be offended so so it is both it is both coming from a true place in which people want to be they want that connection and so they can be offended on behalf of groups that they they claim to be a part of ideologically um but it can be dismissed by the other side as you're you're being silly right this is you're not truly offended and at the same time it is not true insult right it is it's us trying to hold on to something that without having the structures to support it yeah so i mean insult to be a real insult in the honor sense it has to diminish or challenge your reputation or your status and in these cases there's no reputation to uphold right or the reputation of a group that you're closely aligned with yeah i i this is i i talk about this in the book and i compare it to something pinker said cuz burger in that passage that you quoted about insult what the what he says is in the in the contemporary context right now if there's no tangible harm there's no material harm there's no uh way in which your material interests are threatened then they don't even then they deny the reality of the insult it's just right. like the insult doesn't exist so i compare this to something that steven pinker says in his book uh the better angels of our nature Uh, So he's talking about dueling. The way he describes dueling is the participants were fighting not for money or land or even women, but for honor. The strange commodity that exists because everyone believes that everyone else believes that it exists. So you see that attitude right there. It's like for Pinker, okay, it might make sense to fight a duel if you were fighting it for money or a piece of real estate or a woman. That would be okay. (laughs) But just for honor, for your reputation, that's uh, that's obviously irrational and stupid. And I think that that right there is just a core value difference between you know, a, like a hardcore champion of the dignity culture and the hardcore champion of the honor culture, 
that like of course it's your honor that that's what matters if there's money at stake that's like that's a separate thing you know it would be it would be dumb to to fight over to have a duel over money and i think that what's missed is because i fear that people will just be like well taking insult is stupid well it might it might be but i think that the claim really um is that when you have societies in which this kind of relationship exists, right, where your identity is so, um, so much a product of, of group cohesion, and that simply is the way in which people relate to each other with all, along with all the good and the bad, insult just is part of that. It is not that people are adding an, a layer of, hey, by the way, in addition to this like <clears throat> positive identity group, you know, that I'm getting, let's add this thing where when we get in, when someone insults our group, we're going to get really pissed off. It, it just emerges from what it means to truly value something that disrespecting it or dishonoring it <clears throat> is is a material offense in the sense that it is a threat to a deep deeply valued thing and to not even understand the nature of insult means that you haven't understood what it means to be a part of a society like this well yeah and this relates to the zenadine zidane story that i talk about in the book as well i love the zenadine zidane story act but i didn't know the backstory so the the story is the zenadine zidane was a a french uh, national soccer player in the world cup um who was Turkish, right? Was he, He's uh, Algerian. Algerian, he Algerian. Algerian, yeah. Um, but friend, you know, from yeah. So he sort of famously uh, headbutt an opponent on the way to the World Cup. No, in the, fi- in the World Cup finals. Yeah, oh, finals. He's playing for France, and, uh, and but yeah. basically couldn't couldn't play the final right because of this this incident um, because and, he got a red card and and was and kicked got out. ejected from the game and likely. You know, who knows what could have happened, but but definitely did not help them in their <laughs> in their loss. The story that I didn't know, because uh, it seemed to me like he lost his cool and he was a fucking idiot for losing his cool at the expense of of essentially the the chance at winning the World Cup. And may, maybe maybe I still think he shouldn't have done this um, for the sake of of winning the World Cup, but but. What had happened was that an opponent from the other team had been just consistently and constantly insulting his family. And he finally said something about his sister, and Zidane responded with just a headbutt to the chest of the other guy. Um, and when you look the at guy it, he flopped too. Uh, yeah. But of course, he's a soccer player, he flopped. <laughs> um, but it was a clear violation of the rules. I, I think it, in, in the comments afterwards, it became clear that no, this was just him him finally reaching a point where he said i you i cannot have this person consistently uh doing this it's just it's just wrong right it's just i i gotta do something and the other guy admittedly was doing this on purpose um and when he got to the point of insulting his sister he he got the he he got what was coming the part of my story that's a favorite (laughs) is my favorite is is when talking about it the other guy even says, "Yeah, maybe I was pushing him too hard." But look, like I would never insult his mom. 
<laughs> right? No, no, no. Like, he was mad. He was mad that it was reported in some venues that he had oh, said something right. about that's his right. mother. He was like, Look, and he's, he's like, just... I want to make it very clear. I never said anything about his mother. I just called like his sister a slut or something like that. Because <laughs> that would so obviously be crossing a line. <laughs> yeah. uh, I want to read this guy, Ryan Brown, who I quote a lot, and thank God for him. He was he's he wrote a book length, he's a he's a psychologist at Oklahoma, book length critique of honor as a kind of pathology. Yeah. Um, and he wrote about the Zidani incident. And here is his account of what happened. I mean, this is the thing that I think we can both agree <laughs> that we're opposed to. But here here just this is what he how he describes it. From most people, a headbutt to the chest would not amount to much. But from Zidane, it was a stunner, knocking Madarazi to the ground. What provoked the assault that led to Zidane being ejected from the game? Was it a racial slur, uh, as many speculated? Did Madarazi call Zidane a terrorist or something equally obnoxious? No and no. It turns out Madarazi insulted Zidane's sister. For someone like Zidane, steeped in an honor culture of his parents' homeland of Algeria, such an insult is greater than a racial slur, and it cannot be ignored, even if not ignoring it means getting ejected from the final game of the World Cup and the last game of your career. Uh, Even if it means your team loses the final game, which they did, stained honor must be cleansed. Asked about whether he'd be willing to apologize, Matarati, almost four years later, Zidane's response was classic honor syndrome that's what he calls it never it would be to dishonor me i'd rather die um, <laughs> now like it for 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 brown and i think there were a lot of people like this after the incident it was it's just so preposterous and irrational that you would react that way because they don't understand the deep ties to the community that he's practically mocking. He's practically mocking like the deep community ties he has with both the people in the Algerian neighborhood that he grew up with and also from Algeria and his family. And Uh, Tamler, he should just get over it, dude. Come on. I mean, just get over it. But here, but like, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. But but this is like the pride thing, right? Like that's, it, it actually made that community proud of him, even though it ended up losing the World Cup. And I'm not even yeah. saying it's a no-brainer that he should have done it, but to right. just completely ignore or reject the source of it and some of the positive values that lead him to do something like that, that I think is the big sort of Well, and, yeah, and, and I think that, that what the really annoying part of that passage that you read from Brown is the um, the sort of Hitting a racial or an ethnic slur against a family slur and saying it as if it were so obvious that a racial yeah. slur that a racial slur ought to have or could 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 have been understood or for forgiven or whatever um, for setting someone off, but that a family slur wouldn't is to misunderstand what it means to uh, to have those. T- you know, if 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 anything you would probably predict that someone from an honor culture, you know, you, the the more abstract the group, um, the less power an insult would have, right? right. So, qua Zidane family, um, he, the insults would be the, the most brutal, 
maybe qua Algerian, the second most, right? Qua French, clearly, you know, he was willing to to, to take to throw France under the bus to protect this. the the Frenchness can't trump the Zidaneness. To say that there ought to be motivational grounds to be more angry or to to say even that it would be defensible to uh, to respond that way for one of those and not the other, I'm just like, well, like, bite the bullet, dude. He shouldn't, you know, then he should take all kinds of manner of insult and just brush it off. And the only thing that matters is that you stay in the game and yeah. give your team the best chance to win. I mean, and that's maybe, just like, maybe, that's not a no, that's that might be true. But it's certainly not obvious, and I don't even think it is true. Well, and yeah. it's not obvious because I think that, that in order for that to happen, right, this is, again, a misunderstanding about what happens during conflict, is that what you're doing by not doing anything is motivationally taking more pride in your team. And fine, if that's the case, right? Like, as you argue in the book, many teams do do this. That is, their central identity is wrapped up in what it means to be whatever, you know, uh, a Boston Celtic or, or, or something. And so if you punch someone and get ejected because they, they were disrespecting your teammates, then that's what you're, what you're doing is you're defending your team. But if you, if you, in Zidane's case, if you stomach the insults to your family because you care more about your national team, then that's what you're doing. You're making a decision either way. And you can't just say, don't have any loyalty. Like don't don't have group affiliate don't let group affiliations have an emotional pull over you because if group affiliations didn't have an emotional pull over us none of this would happen like we wouldn't have a World Cup we wouldn't have like uh, uh you know groups that get together and with pride create things that we enjoy and fans that that feel connected I feel a personal connection to certain teams. So they 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 created from his old neighborhood. They someone created like a fifteen foot bronze statue of the headbutt, and that was put even in France in like the Pompidou, the Museum of Modern Art. It was like uh, it was featured there for a while as an right. exhibit. So I think if you understand the the complexity of what happened, you can see that it was both a source of pride. And then only possibly an unwise thing to do, all yeah. things considered. But I, I don't even think that's true. I mean, I think all things considered, it's a pretty close call. I mean, like, it totally depends on what, where your interests are, right? Like, yeah. I, I, I can totally understand why you might think that, that somebody, you know, on a, like, the one time your country has a shot at winning the World Cup, maybe you, like, fine. I, like, I, it's, it's, but to ignore that, that there is a conflict there, I think, is what I'm, you know, what what the key point is to to make it seem so obvious, like it's a no brainer. Um, yeah, so this is the quote that says that captures exactly what you said. Um, he said in an interview afterwards, it's hard to explain, but I, I have a need to play intensely every day to fight every match hard. And this desire never to stop fighting is something else I learned in the place I grew up. And for me, the most important thing is that I still know who I am. Every day I think about where I come from and I am still proud to be who I am. Uh, a Kabil, that's uh, somebody from the Berber region of Algeria, from La Castian, uh, then an Algerian from Marseille, and then a Frenchman. So... The Frenchman 
came last, I think for him, just also because they came last in his personal history and, of course, and in terms right. of the people that he actually knows and is connected to. And this really ties back to his identity is constituted by his, the communities that he came out from. And it's also, t- and that's also what makes him a great player. That's what made it yeah. something that uh, like a big loss for France that he got ejected from the game. Um, but it's that same sort of motivation. You can't right. just turn it off and on depending on when it's convenient. Right. And that's why, and, 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 and I think that the, the hierarchy there isn't just partiality gone astray. It is, it is a loyalty to the most proximal support systems that you have. And the loyalty to your family is, is that built out of that motivation, the same motivation that gives anybody loyalty to anything. So your neighborhood, your family, your neighborhood, your, your city, your, your state, your country, whatever it is, as, you, as, as they become more abstract and more distal, of course you don't have the same emotional psychological mechanisms at play in motivating you right so we are we can be motivated by our affiliation as Americans much easier to be motivated by our affiliations as you know whatever our, our, the, a very bad wizards hope the very bad wizards. um and again in the in the vacuum of these support systems what you get is loyalty without support without regulation without wisdom without control and you without get personal connection without personal connection so you get people who who might primarily identify as you know some online community but there's nobody there to tell them hey we don't do that don't you know to give them that nasty look or or that slap in the face or whatever it is that regulation that says hey like this is who we are not that right and and you can't you know, unfortunately, we can't, I, again, to get to the modern conflict, we can't, we can't pick and choose very easily just because our psychology doesn't work like that. We can't say, okay, we're going to have all of the honor with, with none of the insult and revenge or whatever. We're going to, ha- we, we can try, we can calibrate, we can regulate. Contain. Contain, yeah. And that's, that's another central argument that you make, um, which I want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, so the if I had to describe the book in like one or two sentences, the the idea is rather than rejecting wholesale these honor related values and virtues, uh, what we need to do is contain some of the dangers that come and that historically have come with. Um, an honor-oriented value system. And the two categories of dangers that I identify are the danger of escalation. So it's one thing to take personally an insult and to respond in a certain way. But if that conflict escalates uh, uh, beyond control and becomes, uh, a, you know, and could lead to cycles of violence as as they sometimes do. The blood feuds, um, right. the the various uh, long running multi generational beefs that families will have, or or um, communities will have, or countries will have. That's something that needs to be contained. And then the other 
aspect of containment involves just the content of the norms for allocating honor. So what what are the things that bring you dishonor and what are the things that bring you honor? That will change depending on the community. There's so many different kinds of honor cultures and they don't have the same norms for determining what is the thing that makes you honorable or what is the thing that makes you dishonorable. And so that's why you can have something like honor killings where the thing that is deemed so dishonorable that it's actually something that needs to be that that the, the woman needs to be killed is having extramarital sex, you know, and sometimes even unintentionally. But even if it was intentionally, in some ways right. that's not the, the point. Like the idea that you would kill a family member, that, that it brings, in some cases a beloved family member, that it brings your your family so much shame that she is suspected of having uh, extramarital sex that is that that's the kind of norm that you would have to rule out if you right. were trying to incorporate a healthy form of honor into contemporary society that respects human rights and yeah uh, at a I, basic level right and and i think that that is like my fear is that without reading your book somebody might think that that um you're trying to bring the old ways back and they'll bring the old ways back is is a rejection of a, somehow a rejection i mean i think anybody who read past your your prologue would realize that that's not what you're saying but as we've already seen some people don't read that <laughs> some people don't read it at all and feel and then, free to uh feel free to leave reviews um uh, and Berger is very clear. I mean, there is there is a way in which I, I, I truly believe in moral progress. And I truly believe that moral progress has been made because of all of the things that um, that have led to the demise of honor cultures. Um, that is our our acknowledgement of the fundamental humanity of everybody are are traveling back and forth and communicating with people are all across the world view of human humanity as the the group of things that is to be um valued and that everybody has dignity is is so central to moral progress that the answer to what should be constrained has to come from for me from the moral progress that has been gained um, yes and, and i agree with that yeah and, and burger burger says i'm going to quote him again it's, uh Toward the end of his essay, he says, anyone denouncing the modern world to core should pause and question whether he wishes to include in that denunciation the specifically modern discoveries of human dignity and human rights, the conviction that even the weakest members of society have an inherent right to protection and dignity, the proscription of slavery in all its forms of racial and ethnic oppression, the staggering discovery of the dignity and rights of the child, the new sensitivity to cruelty from the abhorrence of torture to the codification of the crime of genocide a sensitivity that has become politically significant in the outrage against the cruelties of the war in Vietnam. Um, and he continues, <clears throat> any, any sense that, that that is what is what ought to be discarded, I think, is, is, would be morally monstrous. It is, though, I think a, a mistake, and I think we agree on this, a mistake to think that one must bleach the world of of notions of honor and, and group identity and, and all of the, the thing, good things that come with that um, because of moral progress. 
Yeah, and and also it's a it's a big mistake to think that honor as a value system is incompatible with the respect for human rights and human dignity in that sense, in the sense that Berger describes. It's it now while it's true that there are plenty of honor cultures that have violated human rights. I mean, right. there's plenty of non-honor cultures that have violated human rights too. Yeah. Um, the uh, the trying to embrace certain aspects of honor doesn't entail um, that we are not going to observe these constraints. And I agree with you, actually, that those constraints um, don't essentially come from the honor-oriented value system. They come from the value system broadly defined as a kind of a dignity value system, the value yeah. system of the enlightenment that Pinker likes to like jerk, jerk himself off about. <laughs> <laughs> but he never comes. He edges to it. He yeah. never comes. Yeah, he edges towards it. <laughs> no, and he's right to jerk himself off to it because it has brought astounding progress to the world um, and it, and we don't want to turn back from that. I agree with it. The one thing I will say is it's not sufficient, right? Yeah. And one of the things that it's, it really focuses on is it tells you what not to do. So mm -hmm. it, it prohibits certain, uh, it prohibits you from infringing on the rights of others. That is the primary kind of ethical emphasis of that value system. But what it lacks, and then by design, is positive recommendations for how to act, how to find meaning, what makes a good life. It wants to leave it up to you to determine that. But that's where I think, especially in, in a large, industrialized, anonymous society, people can get lost. And, you know, I was thinking about this. We have a lot of listeners that are either Jordan Peterson fans or they want us to talk about Jordan Peterson. And then, of course, a lot of people who, uh, who, who don't. But one thing I will say, without knowing the details of whatever it is that he's doing there, is he seems to be providing something that a lot of young and, in many cases, lonely or isolated men yeah. lack there's some yeah. something missing in their lives that he is helping to provide for them um through you know his his recommendations and uh, again i ever read the book I, I i i know almost nothing about it but that that is a deep need that i think we have seen there's a lot of people that really don't find positive they lack positive virtues they know what they're not supposed to do but they don't know what they're supposed to do well you're right well, so <clears throat> so i think that that this is a case where modern society has uh how do i say this in its modern form doesn't acknowledge or doesn't provide an answer to what is sort of a fundamental psychological feature of human beings is that while, while we might explicitly reject um, these kinds of honor systems, they will sprout up. And when they sprout up, um, they do not have the wisdom 
the and the tradition and the the constraint and the regulation that you might get the structure that you would get from from an older system and i and i think this is why things like gang violence can can occur this is the, these are people often looking for meaning for protection for for a sense of belonging and then for all of the reasons that 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 are at play for all of the causes in what what is going on with with uh, what it means to be a gangster nowadays you have a severe lack of deep tradition you have a lack of wise elders because a lot of people get shot before they become wise elders you don't have the constraint um you don't have the the fundamental benefits without all of the potential costs that come about in our culture so when we strip it away there's a vacuum something will take its place something will try to take its place and to deny that i think is to deny some fundamentals of human psychology that's right you know this is how people get radicalized whether it's yeah. islamists or the the right white nationalists or i guess these new people like vlad and the sjw's yeah, Vlad and the SJWs, <laughs> like probably the most destructive force in, in modern society today. And and, uh, and the incels, you know, like uh, those these people who are, you know, they're 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 identifying with something, but it's like on whatever, what's it called? It's 4chan a, or Yeah. No, it's it's yeah, it's built it's building a sense of community on a house of cards. It's not it, you know, it's a it's a foundation of sand, but that there is they're seeking seeking a sense of community and we should guide people and i think that's your point about jordan pearson they need they need a guide they yeah. need institutions um that will guide them that well, will the, and they need them. positive values right oh pride you know? pride yeah. yeah yeah pride right it's like what you what you wouldn't do like like you just and there's uh, no wise old incel elders <laughs> <laughs> they tend not to reproduce. The, I mean, and then, you know, when you see well-functioning honor cultures and you see a lot of just the the benefits that just come from having these structures in place and these institutions, ceremonies, way, rituals, ways of bringing people together, of instilling self-respect, of instilling pride, and in particular of rewarding good, positive, courageous, virtuous behavior, giving people an actual incentive to perform positive moral acts and also giving them disincentives to act dishonorably. And both of those things are lacking in a society that's too anonymous with not with with no close community and with people who have reputation when when nobody really has a reputation that is valuable or that they need to preserve except you know it can't fall before below some floor level but. right it is um a, a a tough game being played right now with with social media um because we are human beings who who can be hurt in non-material ways and the way in which sort of anonym, anonymous internet culture has allowed people to interact um, is is something that has just it is 
a set of conditions that we have never known as as a species. You know, they say uh, puppies who aren't raised around other dogs, (laughs) they can't calibrate their bite properly, right? Because one of the things that happens is that when when one dog bites another one too hard, the dog yelps and that becomes serves a, a little warning. And so socialized dogs know how to play. They know how to play. They don't, you know. And I, and I feel like that that's what we're missing. We're missing those small bites. Um, we're missing those those real reactions from other people to tell us. So um, what you're saying is that our listeners should go out and bite somebody, but not in a but in a playful way, like a, like a like love bites, you know, yeah. like like light choking. Fine, you know, like Lori Santos said, uh, <laughs> talk to your barista. Uh, That's right. Instead of talking to your barista, maybe give your barista a little nibble. A little bit. And if he yelps, you know, yeah. you, went, you went too far. <laughs> then you went too far, and now you're finally getting socialized. <laughs> and, uh, and don't blame us for anything that comes of that. For anything that we ever say, ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't hold us responsible for anything. with it. That's the part of honor cultures that I don't like, that kind of accountability. Yeah, we got to like, God um, damn it. But you know, um, like, I, I, I do think there is something that you said earlier about a lot of these sort of bastardized or corrupted versions of honor will emerge, you know, even in the, these kinds of environments where the the structures aren't in place to uh provide those kinds of constraints that speaks to the need to where we can employ and apply the wisdom that you find in in a whole range of honor cultures for how you handle conflict uh, right. And speaking of that, we have yet to talk about restorative justice, which is such a big part of the book. But we have right. talked about yeah. it before. But in how they handle conflict and how they uh, and and how they regard sort of what what are your responsibilities as an individual um, when you are challenged or when something you care about is challenged, right? post-apocalyptic movies where the actual world is in tatters and people form into into bands and uh, lash out against each other. That is, to me, the metaphor for the void that sometimes I- exists when people are looking to join groups, you know, and the sort of the modern anonymous online communities are like... like m- factions in a post-apocalyptic movie where they don't have the structures that are necessary to be real groups that know how to deal with each other but rather just end up wearing spikes on their shoulders and (laughs) (laughs) whatever it is they do hoarding the water yeah yeah well on that note that's it um Join us next time for another episode of Very Bad Wizards. Please consider buying the book. I hope we've whetted your interest, or at least not dampened your interest in, in this discussion. Thank you, Dave, for the being here. Man. Good man.